Well, I'd like to welcome everyone to what I'm hopeful will be a very provocative and self-empowering discussion. The reason I'm doing this is to give you some tools that you can use in your own life to help figure out some of the problems that a lot of people are just stuck with. The topic of our discussion, you're smarter than you think. <laughs> or is it? Huh? <laughs> we all do stupid things, don't we? Yes. How many times have you done something, even knowing before you did it, you shouldn't do that, and you did it anyhow? Think of the things we do. Smoking, that's stupid, isn't it? Drinking, main liver cells killed, brain cells, kidney cells, heart cells with every single drink. Think about all the things that uh, you did like staying in a bad relationship knowing you didn't have an authentic connection, knowing there was not an authentic, unconditional love, why'd you stay? What happens to that time that you can never live again? Is that stupid? Now, I'm not talking about stupidity from an intellectual point of view. I don't mean that there's an intellectual deficiency, but I do mean that there's a deficiency in awareness. Now, why is it that we're overeating? That's stupid, isn't it? I mean, who gets up in the morning and says, I want to be fatter. I, I don't have enough cellulite. I, I want it just to jiggle when I walk, right? <laughs> A guy gets up and says, I want a pot belly so big I can't see my feet. Where are they? Over there someplace. Yeah, someone says, I gotta smoke this because I don't have enough cancer growing in my lungs. Think of the things we do. Think of the places we live. As if somehow someone's holding a gun to our head and says, this is the only place you're allowed to live, the only job you're allowed to have, the only career you can master, the only relationship you deserve. And then we go ahead and we do things as if somehow this is genetically preordained. How many times have you been told, well, it's in the genes, your alcoholism, your obesity, your, your tendency for crime, it's all in the genes. In point of fact, Dr. Bruce Lipton, a remarkable scientist at uh, Stanford University in the 1980s, found that when he took the DNA out of the cell, when he removed the gene, that was supposed to be the master of life. For the next three weeks, the cell didn't die, wasn't immobile. The cell functioned normally. Some cells can live for two or more months with no genes in it. The cells are not sitting there. They're moving around. They're eating, digesting food, building their body, negotiating with other cells in the environment, recognizing toxins and, and predators in the field and using the appropriate behavior to protect themselves. Essentially, what I'm telling you is this. Without any genes in the cell, the cell still has the coordinated behavior of life. It's still a living system, and it's moving and going even with no genes. And there's an important conclusion to that. And the answer is very simply. The nucleus cannot be the brain of the cell because there's apparently still a brain inside the cell even though there are no genes in it. Well, that's the important understanding is then what controls biology is not the genes. Nope, it's something else. How was that possible? Imagine it. That's like taking the brain out of your skull and you can continue to think and talk. Take the engine out of a car and the car can still run. 
How's it possible? Because as we now know, but have not yet accepted universally and applied, we are not predetermined. We are not preordained. We are not predicated in our behavior upon a sequence. We are, however, completely associated with the environment. It is the environment that you're in, and there's an energy that connects everything in your environment. The general public has been programmed with a belief about their own lives that they represent the expression of a genetic automaton, that their whole life, their whole biology, that all of their functions are some way pre-programmed into their genes. If cancer is running in my family, then cancer is likely to be running in my body as well. This is the belief of that. And yet, there's another genetic code that has been more or less recently understood for about the last 10 or more years, and it's called epigenetic control. And epi means above, so if I des describe epigenetic control, it means control above the genes. And what does that mean? It says, well, I have genes that make blueprints, and I have an epigenetic control mechanism, which is more or less a contractor. We now know that less than 5%, probably less than 3% of the population, a very small percentage of the population, actually arrived on this planet with defective blueprints, meaning that a small percentage of the people can seriously say that my life is impacted in a negative way because my blueprints were wrong when I got here. But that means we have 95 to 97 percent of the population that got here with a beautiful set of blueprints. They have no reason to have illnesses or problems with their health on this planet in this regard. You all know when you feel good and you know when you don't feel good. You know when you feel connected with something authentic you know when you don't. The body doesn't lie. The body doesn't lie for a simple reason, because you have anywhere from 65 to 70 trillion cells that are working in perfect harmony every microsecond of your existence. Every second, there's complete unity, synergy. No matter what you do, you drink, you smoke, you eat meat and french fries, you go on that Atkins diet, and you eat sugar, and what happens? The body, in spite of all that you're doing, causing inflammation and destroying its very DNA, causing cell mutations is fighting on your behalf. How can you explain 65 to 70 trillion cells working in perfect harmony every microsecond of the day? You can't explain it from a reductionistic philosophy. What is important is that there's a life energy, a, a, a dynamic energy, and it has its own reality. And that reality is its consciousness. The trouble is when we're raised, we're not raised to understand that consciousness. We're raised to understand the social consciousness. We're all given very predictable ways of living. This is how you should have your hair. This is your dress. This is how you should speak. This is how far you should stay from someone when you're communicating. This is what you should say if you want something. This is how you should act if you don't get what you want. Well, by the time we are five to six years of age, we're already mastering these behaviors that we have picked up from our parents. Little wonder then that later in life we're acting out in an infantile way but through an adult mind that doesn't perceive that it's connected still. Remember, everything you've ever experienced in your life is still present every second. There's about 40 pieces of information per second that tries to get into your conscious mind and be processed. There's over a hundred million 
every second in your subconscious. Guess what wins? Well, and that's what caused the behavior. Even when you have a, a knowledge, when you have an instinct to do one thing, you're going to do the other more often than not. Because the total sum of every experience you've ever had is weighted against you. The unconscious accesses incoming information. It processes it. It probably makes calculations based upon it, presents at some level of self, plots and such, and it edits this information. And then it makes capsules or kernels of information small enough for the conscious, and then it feeds them to the conscious. And one of the very important issues here is that it, of all the material that comes in, it only feeds forward information that has meaning to the conscious self. That is something that heretofore the conscious self has given meaning to, and all the rest of it, it dumps. So what that says to us is that if you don't give a thing meaning, then even though information is available to you, you don't get it conscious in your conscious mind. You don't have conscious experience of it because you don't give it any meaning. And therefore, if you wish to grow in consciousness, you need to give things meaning. You can't avoid everything you've ever experienced. Every sight, smell, sound, touch, feeling, sensation, every word, everything is still here. It's just accessing it and its understanding is it's still important to me. If something happened once in my life that I didn't like, should I, should I in any way respond to it today? It's not important today. What's important today is today. How can I get to where what I'm dealing with is my emotions today? That's what we're going to be focused on so we don't make stupid things happen. Smart people do foolish things all the time. And then how many times have you said, why'd you do that? Why? That was just stupid. Let's take this journey. I'm going to be sharing some questions with you and statements. My questions and statements are not to be anything more than a suggestion, a point of departure, in the hopes that maybe some will penetrate into that subconscious and open you up and allow some variance. Everything in life has an expiration date. We plan early on in life to have everything happen with a sense of permanency. Our friendships, our relationships, everything. Our health, it's always supposed to be there, so we take it for granted. When you're young, you never think about getting old, you never think about dying. When you get older, you don't think about being young and vital again because you assume you can't. Your genes can't do it, or can they? So in the passage that we're in, we rarely appreciate the significance of that passage in relationship to everything else we're doing in life for the next stage. As a result, in our society, we have no transitions. There's no one there to help us as we go through each transition of life. We're never in the moment we're in. We're always someplace else. So by being present for the moment you're in, you're conscious of everything that's present with you. And if you're conscious of everything that's with you, you can then give it the attention that it deserves. That includes people and your companions. 
and includes yourself. I noticed at a wedding that I had to do not long ago that the bride was so concerned about etiquette and about everything being absolutely perfect that she was having an absolutely miserable day. Now if you think about that, I mean here this should be like the happiest day in her life, right? Instead of being the happiest day in her life, she was so concerned about all the little details and what's going wrong here and what's going wrong there that she wasn't present, that she wasn't being herself, that she wasn't being able to be loving to this guy that she was marrying. How often do we master our personalities instead of our lives? Almost everyone masters how you communicate every little nuance, how to act and react. We have every single thing already in our defense system. So where is there any opportunity for someone to see the authentic person? If all you've done is mastered your personality, then you're always going to be what you think people want you to be in order for you to be acceptable to them. And you're not going to be anything that you're going to think is going to be rejected or criticized, are you? So as a result, we're masquerading ourselves all the time. Well, how does that allow someone to know who we are as people? What if you have thoughts that someone might reject? Well, does it make it any better because they like your personality that somehow they're going to accept your, your inner being? Why not just say, this is who I am, master who you are? Because every human being has beauty in them. Every human being has the wonderful quality of life. They can distort it. They can deny it. They can hide it. They can manifest a negative, toxic, violent nature, but that is not who they were born as. Every human creature is born, every human being is born with unconditional love. Between that unconditional love and what people become is the conditioned self. The authentic self is the real self. It's who you really are. But allowing yourself to be who you really are means that you have to un un unencumber yourself of everything you're not. Seeking out there will never get you what you want. Seeking inside and looking for the higher self, for the higher truth, will get you what you want. So for example, just trying to be happy by changing a job or getting a new husband or wife is not going to make you happy necessarily. Whereas if you honestly strive internally and then come at the world through what you learn internally, you will be happier. What if you just said, I don't have to always be hustling my personality, giddy and chitty and wise and wonderful and, and sexy and, and clever and, and the Upper West Side, serious. Everyone on the Upper West Side, serious, Gary. We don't laugh. Well, we do, but we control that laugh. It's almost as, it, sometimes we can be dying laughing, but we control, we'll be going, <laughs> you won't know it. <laughs> we, 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 because if we laughed, you're not going to think we're serious. And we'd rather be known as being serious because with seriousness means you're a suffering person and we gain a lot from the fact that we are suffering. Like artists, we suffer. We're living in a time where there's an inordinate amount of suffering. There's an inordinate amount of pain. There's an inordinate, an inordinate amount of violence all around the planet. And the planet is deeply at risk, and each and every single one of us has the capacity to be a warrior, 
of creating a new world. And that new world is one where love and caring supersedes competitiveness and, and aggression. The Buddha explained, and metapsychiatry explains, that all suffering begins with desire. We want something. We only want something because we feel we lack something. We're not at peace with what is. As long as you're able to learn a new lesson, then the suffering is meaningful for you. You don't feel resentment and anger and um, all the unpleasant feelings if you learn a lesson, and that's a big if. We as mental health professionals, we need to help people to recover and discover a new meaning because every time you have a crisis or a trauma or an unpleasant incident, your whole life and the view that you have of life changes right and with that you you start learning new lessons you start growing with it the human ego which is that part of our minds not the way Freud defined it but I think it's more the way the Easterners talk about it it's that part of us that is more the irrational it's a part that wants to create pain and suffering it's a part that wants to perpetuate our suffering it's the voice of illusion the one that makes promises to solve problems but always creates more of the problem so I think that part of the mind that keeps us embedded in suffering uses the brain, uses the body in that way to make those imprints. But it really has no power except what we give to it by listening to it and believing it. And these kind of processes show us how we can take away what seems to be so powerful of that voice inside and just totally erase it and show it disappears in the nothingness. How much external and internal clutter do you have? And how much time and energy does it take to maintain it? A lot. Now that's stupid, isn't it? All that clutter. Yeah. And what good is it in the end? Because everything you thought was so important one time, sooner or later, you stop using. Well, take a look at how many clothes you got in your closet. Not enough, she said. No, she wants more clutter. <laughs> But most people have an enormous amount of clutter. Just look in the average person's garage and attic and everywhere. Well, what would happen if you just said, all right, three things are going to happen. I'm going to use it regularly, give it away, or throw it away. And I'm not going to give it to a charity. I'm going to find a person who could use this and give it to another human being. Recognize that person's needs and honor them and give it to them. But we're afraid to let go of things. Why? Because our clutter represents our successes. It represents the different stages of our evolution. You are what you possess. You are what you achieve. You are what you're recognized for. So if you're recognized for doing more and collecting more, then you have to have more to show that you have some substance. Who recognizes the person who doesn't have the big house? Who recognizes the person who doesn't have the, the, you know, the great bod, the big bank account? Just look at our media. Everything's about getting that clutter. How do we distinguish between what we believe we need and what we really need? Uh, it is a very difficult question also because uh, we are, of course, guided by what, by what we believe. We cannot help being guided by that. So how do we really know what we need? Ego, our own selfish nature based on conditioning, is always trying to guide us to that which seems to be attractive, which seems that it will please us. But we, uh, what pleases us 
is not necessarily what we need to do. This is the fundamental question for which I have to find an answer. And the only answer that, that I have found useful for myself is always this one thing, not to take myself, not to take me and my wants and my pleasures and my belief system very serious. You are more significant than what you achieve. You're more significant than your career. You're more significant than your possessions or your money. That means that we could take the poorest American and the wealthiest American, and on a scale of spirituality, they could be equals. But when did we ever put a person who is poor up on Time Magazine Person of the Year? Or people's uh, 50 prettiest, right? Why is it they're always actors and actresses? We gotta realize we're rather superficial in what we consider to be the best of anything. We manifest very complex lifestyles instead of authentic ones. Why do we make our life so complex? Why? Why not make it simple? Wouldn't it be wonderful if you woke up each day and everything was kind of simple? Because you didn't have the clutter and you didn't have to go prove yourself? You didn't have to prove your love to someone. You didn't have to prove your obedience to some belief. You didn't have to go through rituals and dogmas and creeds to prove that you, you should be respected. What if we took all that out of our life and simply said, I'm an authentic soul and my life is simple and I'm happy? Much of our life we are searching to find meaning in life. But to find that meaning, to find the truth of what is really important, we need to be quiet and attentive. The quality of our life and the ability to find meaning depends on the acuity of our attention. We don't know how to sit quietly, so all the time we need something to be busy. So we uh, distract ourselves with this and that. Attention deficit, of course, is a common problem, even with children. And adults have it too. It's, uh, it's a quality that Easterners, um, India from where I came from, uh, call uh, the quality of rajas, the quality of kings. Kings used to be very impatient people. Today we all have become a little bit like king in that way. Think of what we do to get to a point where we feel that we'll be able to have a simplified life. Think of the person, the two guys, just the other day, two of the most successful guys on Wall Street, both extremely stressed. One guy has, he's 44 years old, he's got heart disease. The other guy uh, had uh, a major occlusion in his artery, right artery, and they're both on meds. So finally they take you know, a trip, they go down to this island um, in the Caribbean, one of the U.S. Uh, islands, and they're jogging down a beach and there's this guy, and it, it's a beautiful picture, palm tree, it's right at the end of a curve around the beach, guy's sitting there, he's playing the guitar, and the guys are kind of interested in this, they go over and they're chatting with him, and what do you do? And he says, I fish. Where do you fish? I fish the Berry Reef. What kind of boat? 12-foot boat. How much fish do you catch? Enough. Well, you realize, and these are two of Wall Street's best, you realize that if you got a bigger boat, you could fish outside the Berry Reef where all the fish are, and you could supply fish to the hotel that doesn't have fresh fish where we're staying, we're getting frozen fish that taste like sponge, and then that, that would give you great business. Within five years, you could buy 
a bigger boat and you could go further down to the north end of Venezuela and where you can get red snapper and red snapper is a major major fish you could go up to Miami and you could have a lot of money within five years after that you could get an IPO you come to us we could get you at least a fleet of boats within 12 years from that you could you could have enough money a lot of work a lot of stress but you could have enough money to go to a beach, sit on a palm tree, and play the guitar. <laughs> what we do, the hoops we jump through, for what? We've run away from passion, pleasure, and fulfillment. We didn't notice it when it was present, because we were looking for something else. All of us like to forget that we're mortal. We have the freedom to take whatever time is left to us and to use it to its fullest, which is what those of us who dwell in the illusion of immortality don't do. The best way to start is to look at what would take us out of the moment. The moment is somewhere in between the past and the future. So what takes us into the past? Largely it's guilt. It's what went wrong, wish I'd have done that different, you know, and, but we really don't have to live there. I mean, guilt is not a very pleasant place. We would all agree that. Right? There's really no guilt in the moment. There's no guilt when I'm focused. There's no guilt when I'm just being who I'm really supposed to be. So the other alternative is that we're wandering into the future. And very often the essential relationship we have with the future is one of fear. This is kind of what if. What if I get sick? Uh, what if I don't have enough money? What if there's nobody to take care of me? What if all the, not that any of these things are happening, but it's kind of a what if. So we got if only back here in guilt. We got what if up here in the future in terms of fear, both of which are keeping us from being here. Keep only what is essential for your life. If it's not essential, don't keep it. Don't try to possess it. That means when you wake up in the morning, what do you need for the essentials of your life? And once you have it, stop looking. I live in a building on the west side. It's a baby boomer from hell building. <laughs> Everybody's yelling. My neighbor screaming the other day. I had to go knock on the door and says, you know, there's someone's going to call the police. Certainly someone did call the police because these people are always screaming and they're successful but not successful enough to be happy. Because when you need something out there to make you feel good in here, there's never going to be enough to fill that void. And when you're trying to prove yourself, we're a society that judges each other based upon our provings. Prove to me. Prove what to you? Prove that, that you're a loving person, a good person, that you can be trusted, that you can be honored. What do you have to prove? If you're insisting someone prove something to you, that's a relationship you ought not to get near. And yet we prove all the time. We prove we're tough or we prove that we're, we're, you know, we're going to get justice. Every time I see someone trying to get justice for something, I see another crisis. I see another problem occurring. Stop proving yourself. You don't need to prove yourself. You think you do because society creates a standard that you're trying to meet. When they said, Gary, after this debate I did when I was just, just coming into the field of health and nutrition, it was, down in, it was down in Atlanta, 
and I was tired. I'd been on this long tour, and I'd gotten in there early in the morning off the red eye from Los Angeles, and I'm only like 24 years old, and uh, I was there to talk about the importance of organic produce, or that's what I was told. I walk into the studio, and suddenly I see five guys with folders, and I said, what's this about? And the producer said, oh, bloodletting's about to begin. I said, what bloodletting? <laughs> Whose blood? <laughs> Yours. I said, for what? Why? Well, these are all people, you know, who think that your statements are radical and irresponsible. Wh which statements? You know, that the, the sugar's bad and colas are bad and meat's bad. Well, who are they affiliated with? Oh, they're doctors. No, who, who, what? So I asked him, before we go on the air, I said, are any of you affiliated with Coca-Cola? They wouldn't answer me. Yeah. And it was all about protecting the special interest group. So when the show went on, do you have a PhD? No. Well, do you have a? No. Are you a? No. Well, what gives you the right to? I don't know. <laughs> Why'd you invite me? So I just, I argued with them on the issue of common sense. And they believed that because they had the MDs and PhDs, they were right. When we got outside, the guy says, look, you're never going to be taken seriously unless you get your degrees. I said, why? Well, we only take people seriously who are credential. So I'm back to school and I, I got my degrees, undergraduate and graduate and doctorate and all the rest. And, but then you got to be a scientist, so I became a scientist. <laughs> well, you got to publish in period, I published in peer reviewed journals. Got to make major discoveries. I made major discoveries. Discovered that the protein, amino acid composition of all vegetables and grains and a lot of other things. And yeah, but then you have to teach. I taught. Fairleigh Dickinson, a lot of other schools. And then, what else do I have to do? Well, you don't have to do anything because we're still not going to believe you. <laughs> Understand the game, approving. Someone who demands that you prove yourself is someone who will never accept you in any case. It's a game. Many of us are afraid of being judged by others and of failing. And I think when you go beyond the idea of failing and succeeding and go into doing and being, you get beyond that. When you're coming from your heart rather than from ego, it's easier to let go of insecurities. If we realize that even hardship in life is, is a strange form of gift, it depends on what you are looking for in life. If you're looking for a joyride and no problems, you'll be inevitably disappointed. But if you view the meaning of life as to grow as much as possible, then every obstacle presented to you is a lesson to be learned and, again, a strange form of gift. We go outside of ourselves for our meaning. Where do we go for our meaning? Let me hear some responses. Where do we go to get our meaning? Church. Church? The yeah. Mo the movies. The movies, sure. Yeah, a lot of people go to the movies. During the Great Depression, movies were very popular. A person's life was so bad, they wanted to see someone who was winning at life. They wanted to see people in glamorous positions because they wanted to fantasize and connect with that. Where else did we get our meaning? Careers. Careers give us our meaning. And, and what about the career gives you meaning? Only if you succeed. So success is equivalent to meaning. Where else? Friends. Friends and social circles. Relationships. Relationships. Synchronistic events. Synchronistic events. 
Think of all the places we think we have meaning because we have been acknowledged by someone else. I know people that if you ask them about themselves, they can tell you about their relationship, but they can't tell you about who they are because they have not developed themselves. They put all their energy into the relationship. A relationship should always be three entities. A person, a person, and a third entity that is created, that shares what they choose to share, but never relinquishes the essential self. When you surrender yourself to the relationship, you no longer are yourself. And yet we have a hard time with that concept in our society because our belief system is you are the relationship. If the relationship fails, you fail. If it's bad, you're bad. If it's un unloving, you're unloving. And then it's blaming and taking sides and getting vindictive instead of saying, look, a relationship is simply a passage and all of life is a series of passages. And people are there to assist us in the passage. And some of those assistances are wonderful and some are not and some are painful. But it's just a passage. So pay attention to the passage you're in. And if you find that that passage is meaningful, extend it. If it's not, end it. Learn its lessons, forgive it, and surrender that energy. If you don't, then every relationship you've ever had becomes the new relationship you're in. Uh, sometimes we'll find ourselves overreacting to a situation, behaving stupidly in that way. And what that is, basically, as we now know from the new, new research, is that that limbic system, that survival part of the brain that's there to make us survive, uh, has an imprint in it from that uh, situation. So say if we have a, a, a trauma, that painful experience, it looks like this. Use the image of one finger here. And we have something else that happens in our lives that uh, is different. Say I'll use two or three fingers to make it show that it's different. Uh, that doesn't really disturb us in a strong, irrational way. It just means it's a challenge we're dealing with at that time that might be uncomfortable, but it's not what really makes us behave irrationally. But if something else happens in our current life that resembles this at all, that begins to look like that, then suddenly the limbic system kicks in. It's a survival brain. We go into fight or flight or defense mode, and suddenly all rationality just stops. Anger arises from thinking we're not going to get what we want. Fear arises from thinking that what we have is going to be taken away from us. You can choose forgiveness. Some people say, oh, if you forgive, then that means you're letting the perpetrator free, setting them free. No. Forgiveness does not mean that I'm letting go of my human rights. It just means that now I can work better in a peaceful place rather than in a place of anger, fear, and revenge, I can work in a pe peaceful and a, in a harmonious way to find out how I can understand the enemy, how I can get the enemy to be on my side, on humanity's side. So saving the quote-unquote the enemy within us and within others. We are validated by what we do, which means that if we don't do it well, then we feel invalidated. So almost everything we do is trying to become someone else's point of validation. Always doing for others to get some response back. Think of all the chronic caregivers in our society, underappreciated, overworked, 
people who die earlier than other people because their life is not their own. They're taking on the energy of the people they're caring for. How many times in our lives do we feel so underappreciated that we don't even know what to feel anymore? We walk around almost, almost disconnected from life. Stop feeling that you have to be validated in order to be real. Doesn't matter if someone validates you. It only matters that you feel valid. When we're vulnerable is when we're strongest. And I think it's the weaknesses are the things that we should embrace because we are human beings and we're not perfect. It's not about perfection. And the weaknesses are endearing. What seduces us also shares our values. What seduces us in our society? Let me hear. Money. Money seduces us. Why? What does money give us? Power. Power. What does power give us? Okay. Respect. Fame. Fame. Control. Control. So we equate money with control. What can we control with money? People. 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 So you think. In point of fact, power is an illusion. Richard Nixon was the most powerful man in the world one day, and having no power the next. Where did the power go? Power is an illusion. It's getting someone to believe that you need them in more than you could do something for yourself, that they are superior to you. So a lot of what we do in our society is we position ourselves in the artificial structures of hierarchical orders. The dean of a department is, is more important than just a professor of the department. But the dean of the school is more important than the dean of the department. The teacher is not as important as the professor. The professor is, not as, is more important than the adjunct professor or the associate professor. But who is to say who is the better instructor? Who has more knowledge? That hierarchical structure doesn't mean that one person is actually better at what they do than all the others under them. Think in education. Does the principal, is the principal better at organizing or instructing or understanding than the teacher? Think in foreign affairs. Could anyone make a bigger mess of the world than the people who've run foreign affairs for the last 50 years? <laughs> Let me think. No. <laughs> We have a unique phenomena in our society of the stronger exploiting the weaker. Did we have slavery? I think we did. Landowners who founded our country, who then ran it, as they saw best, for better or worse, it wasn't the poor people running our country. Who runs America? The powerful. Everybody masters something, right? They master their personality, they master their techniques, and that's what they sell us. But what do we get behind the strength? We get the weakness. It comes out inevitably. In every situation, the weakness will undermine the strength. So you can build all the illusions you want, but if the illusions based upon a weak part of a person is going to collapse. Power is an illusion. The illusion is the competitiveness and the separateness 
and the striving for what we think is success, which is winning. Instead, we move out of that illusion into the reality of our connectedness and the spiritual nature of our being. We have to change our political system where people who seek power will not be respected anymore, nor will they be feared because we are ultimately the meaning seekers. We should remember that and we should do that in our lives whenever necessary. No power should be coveted at the expense of the search for meaning which is basic to us. Stop personalizing your anger. We're a society that makes makes ourselves crazy thinking somehow it's about us. If someone doesn't call you, if someone doesn't acknowledge you for what you do, uh, if someone says something that you're not happy about, instead of saying, why'd you say that? And then get all upset and start emoting, why not just depersonalize it and say, it's just an emotion, but I'm not going to connect with it. What's this really about? Behind anger, there's always something else that's not being communicated. Look for what's missing in the communication. Go to what's really being felt. If you're in a car, a car jam and, and you're slow and then someone cuts in front of you and you start hitting on the horn and yelling out the window, you've personalized it. Do you think that person said, uh -uh, I'm going to go after you today. <laughs> I'm going to wait until I can cut in front of you, because I know it's going to piss you off. <laughs> no, no. But you're acting like it was you that that guy was doing something to, personally. Most of what happens in life is not personal, but we take it personal. And then we start extending our anger out. Just surrender the need to react. Surrender it. Go to neutral and look at it and say, what's really going on here? Because I want to know what is really happening. And more often than not, someone else is expressing inappropriately their emotions, and it really isn't about you, it's about them. How many in this room have had what I call the uh-huh conversations? Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. Well, call me back later and say the same thing. And I, Yeah, uh-huh, okay. We'll talk tomorrow like we did today and yesterday and the next day and ever, forever. All we can do is talk. But, but we'll just entertain each other with this nonsense. What if, what if you had an ability only to talk once on any issue? That's it. Let's go over this one time. That's it. You get it or you don't. Boy, will we pay attention then. One time only. Why don't we communicate that way? Be present for what is being shared and be open to what is being said. Whether you agree or disagree, want to use it or not, at least be willing to connect with it. I can stay non-judgmental. When I listen non-judgmentally, I hear everything. When I look non-judgmentally, I see everything. When I come with unconditional love, I don't have to judge something. I can let it be what it is, and then I can decide whether to accept or reject it. But how often in our society do we prejudge everything? We presuppose everything. Oh, I wouldn't like that. How do you know? Well, I wouldn't like that. How do you know? I'm sure I wouldn't. I don't even want to. I don't even want to. How do you know? Well, yeah, you don't know. We're afraid to open ourselves up. We're afraid of what? We're afraid of creating discomfort. 
the number one compulsion, the number one addiction is comfort addiction in the United States. And you can't change without, without surrendering something. To change, you have to give something up to replace it with something. So we're afraid of letting something go because we've gotten used to it. Even something that doesn't feel good is better than the void. The universe abhors a void. We don't want a void. So we try to keep filling our lives with something and hope that it's meaningful. At the end of the day, when we stop running long enough, we realize we're right back to where we started. We're right back at the first step because all we did is just fill our lives with nothing that was essential. I'd have to say we do foolish things if we're an immature soul, and we do foolish things if we give the wrong things meaning. But the issue is, if we don't see the traps in life, we have to go through the crap until we see the traps, because that's our only teacher. If we can't get the information other ways, by reading, learning, and just growing, being, becoming more mature, then we have to experience the phenomena associated with doing foolish things. We began as little kids to draw conclusions. <clears throat> Those conclusions gel into what I call a core belief system. And that core belief system works much like software in, in, in our uh, computer program. And the reason it works so similarly is actually the human brain is a prototype for the computer anyway. That's the way we conceive the idea of having a computer and how it might work and store information. And so when we draw those conclusions, it might be conclusions out of the, the painful experiences that I'm rejectable versus I'm lovable, or it might be I'm unworthy, or I don't deserve a happy relationship. If I were to do traditional marital therapy with them, teaching them techniques of communication and listening, it doesn't get anywhere if those beliefs are in place. And the traumas behind that are really uh, firing up the whole thing. But if you've cleared out the trauma, then if you do one of these processes, which uh, clears out the belief itself, then you can actually install a new belief that they prefer to live by. It's like putting new software in your computer. And once that's so, then if you work on listening and communication, they can learn it. It can be right there. They can be reasonable with each other. They can take turns to hearing each other. They can hear the pain the other one has without being defensive. So we have to, these are upstream kind of procedures for beginning to, you know, to deal with that problem of uh, uh, behaving stupidly or behaving irrationally or behaving in ways that are non-productive. Non 95% of our behavior is actually coming from the subconscious mind and that the fundamental programs of the subconscious mind were put in in the first six years. And while my conscious mind has access to all the new information and all the things I've learned since then, uh, the conscious mind only runs my show 5% of the time. So it says I could be totally intelligent 5% of the time, but it's the other 95% of the time coming from the tape player where those foolish and stupid acts come from, and they're not particularly anything that we would consciously engage in. We only do it because, at that point in time, they're stimulus response push-button operations. So the issue is, why would an intelligent person do something stupid? And the answer is, well, how much of that, of that activity was controlled by their conscious mind, and how much of it was controlled by their subconscious mind, because Yes, their conscious mind has all the data, the truth, the answers, 
and yet the subconscious mind has the push-button shows. Do you take advantage of any qualities in other people to exploit that? If you exploit people or circumstances, that is a negative. I do not believe that we should ever feel good about winning at someone else's loss, exploiting any situation to our advantage at someone else's disadvantage. I believe that when we look at the society we live in today, an awful lot of people have gotten rich at other people's expense. And even emotionally, we should never exploit a relationship. If you're exploiting it, that means someone is being affected to the degree that you're gaining something, someone's losing something. Why not look at all of our actions and deeds and say, am I empowering people by what I'm sharing? If what you share empowers, then there's a positive energy that will go with it. If what you share disempowers, there's a negative energy that will go with it. Think of the reactions you've had in your life because of you being exploited and then you take it personally, and now you become what you have feared, exploited, vulnerable, weak, and no control. And frequently we will then look for circumstances, people, or institutions that will take away our fear and make us feel less vulnerable. And you know what happens when you rely upon institutions, other people, to make you feel less vulnerable? you no longer can act as an autonomous, independent person. You have to act in accord with the energy of the institution or group or people that are taking care of you. And that is only going to compound the problem. You can hide from what you fear. You can feel a false sense of security. But at the end of the day, if any action you've taken is based upon you feeling insecure, it means that you're still insecure. We hide our weaknesses through denial and projection and repression. We just, if we don't want to look at them, we try to project what we think of as our ideal image, as our ideal self. And we hide from the, tr the darker side of our nature. We don't want to show anybody that darker side. The darker side meaning anything we don't like about ourselves. Uh, for example, when I was young, I was very shy and I didn't want anybody to see that I was very shy. So it was, a, it was a difficult balancing act to try to act like I was outgoing when I really felt shy inside. But when I opened up to it and said, okay, sometimes I'm shy, the shyness actually went away. And I'm not that way anymore. Moments of clarity open us to new choices. We need moments of clarity. When we have a moment of clarity, it's almost always when we're relaxed when we're not trying to process outside stimulation. And that's why we need those moments, choose those moments, make those moments where you're not competing with everything else in your environment. That's why quiet introspection, quiet moments, find the time, make the time to be still. The quiet mind is a healing mind. The busy mind is a diseasing mind. We're creating conflict, and conflict creates imbalance. Imbalance leads to disease. So choose places where you can sit and focus and seek clarity. And when you seek clarity, you will have clarity. And in that clarity where all that opens, the confusion opens, everything opens, the rituals open, and you see what is, then you can decide what you want to do with your clear moment. 
But if you don't process it and you don't actualize it, then we're forever walking in a maze. And we, this week it's this maze, and then next week that, I'll try that, and then that, and that, and that. We're always seeking something outside of ourselves because we can't get out of the maze. Clarity gets us out of the maze. Why do we stay in lives that we are grown? Fear. Fear of the unknown. My teacher Colette said, nothing of true value happens unless you make a leap into uncertainty. When you're saying, I'm going to do something, change, you're taking a risk because you don't know what the future means. You don't know what is going to happen after that. So it, uh, but risk is exciting. It's the only, it's, we have to be able to live with risk. Our whole humanity is a risk right now. We can excel at external achievements and still have inner, inner joy. Excelling at anything we do, as long as it's real and authentic, is going to give us joy. It energizes us. But excelling at something that is not real for us exhausts us. Look at where your energy goes. If you don't have the energy, the universe is telling you, you've connected with the wrong thing. No matter how you try to make it right in your mind. The meaning of life always comes from the deeper self, not the conditioned self. If you try to find the meaning of your life from your beliefs, all you're finding is the meaning of the beliefs, not yourself. Greed and avarice is predictable. Look for the insecure person and you'll always find greed and avarice. Look for the truly unconditionally loving person and you never find greed and avarice. So if we see that people are greedy, why would you want to relate with them? Why? What do you expect is going to come from that? Get below the superficial. Meditation, prayer, self-reflection, quiet space takes you to that deeper place. That's where real change is possible. If you just keep chronically busy, ba-ba-ba-ba, and working, then you're never going to have real authentic change. We have more information trying to get into our mind than we can possibly handle. And what do we do when we're overwhelmed by all the information? We watch television get more of it. <laughs> Listen to radio and get more of it. And go out in the world and just get flooded with it. It's like saying, okay, I can take this tidal wave. And then you get angry because there's no place to be yourself. I believe that how we're going to live a life of meaning and purpose, of balance and unity, is to accept that we are unique to who we are, but we're connected to everyone. Mm -hmm. When you can see yourself and others, every single other person, the best that you are and the best of another person, then you've made an authentic connection. We weren't born to all live on a planet and be so separate from each other. And yet almost everything we do is meant to make us uniquely different. Our income makes us different. Our titles, our awards, where we work, where we live, what we eat, where we eat, what we avail ourselves of. Until one day, we made ourselves so exclusive and so different than everyone that we walk by people without ever once looking at them and saying, friend, what do you and I have in common? We're both special spiritual people.
we can't even bring ourselves to smile at strangers. Fear binds us, limits us. Love opens us. People won't make stupid choices when the choice is coming from love. People can only make stupid choices when the choice comes from fear, anger, hate, resentment, greed, avarice. So when you wake up tomorrow, ask yourself, you have the control over every single action that you take. You have no control over anything else in this world. You don't control the weather, you don't control anybody else, but you can control yourself and you can control how you want to respond to all these other people. Try something different. Try responding as one non-defensive human being, open and caring to another, and see what changes.